I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephen Powers. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by Vice President of Forrester's Emerging Tech Portfolio, Brian Hopkins, and Vice President and Principal Analyst, Michelle Getz, to review our top emerging technologies for 2023. Welcome both. All right, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we dig into any specific technologies, Brian, I'd love to maybe just level set, like how is this list organized? How did you come to this top 10 list amongst other things? Maybe you could start there. Sure, absolutely. This year we evolved what we did last year to really try to organize the top 10 technologies by uh, an answer to what we think is the number one question our clients have. Is this technology ready for me? What's it gonna do? Can I use it? And that's really not just a matter of the maturity of the technology. But it's also a matter of the maturity of the organization considering using the technologies. So we call these three kind of timeframes benefits horizons. We have short, mid, and long term. I think it's uh, now to two years, two to five years, and five years out. And when you look at those benefits horizons, what we're saying is that in the short term, we think that these technologies are going to deliver a, a really tangible ROI now over the next two years. So it's really about that hard dollar return on investments for most firms. The average firm will be able to get that ROI. The midterm is two to five years. And we think and the language we use there is uh, um, significant benefit. So it's not really ROI. It's more like the average firm is going to see some really substantial things out of these, but it's going to take a few more years. And then the last one, the long term, what we say is expected value. So it's a really squishy term and, and those things that are five years out, who knows what's really going to happen in five years. So again, we're saying the average firm is going to see something big, but it's going to take a while. And the last thing I'll say about Benefit Horizon is it's, it's the average firm realizing that there are firms that are more advanced, that take better risks on technology, that invest more in technology, and they're going to make faster progress than the average firm. So the Benefits Horizon is really kind of a fine, nuanced way of organizing the 10 technologies that tries to answer that question based on kind of the average firm. I will say that we landed on the 10 this year doing the same thing we did last year. Uh, we start, I have a database that I developed, got about 400 technologies in it this year. Um, we add all the techs in our tech tides. We add uh, technologies. I get talking to a lot of clients. And we went through a process of screening that 400 down to 75 that we call priority. And then from that 75, we did a lot. We ran a survey of analysts. We looked at a bunch of data. We looked at documents and readership, and we looked at external data sources. And we went through a whole kind of rigorous process and several rounds of collaboration to get down to 20. And then from that 20, we kind of strategically talked to our leadership and talked to some senior analysts and aligned those 20 to what we thought the most important things for business were going to be. And that's how we got to the 10. The benefit horizon concept is really interesting to me, and obviously it depends on the technology, but are there characteristics of certain firms which will have a faster benefit horizon? Well, the benefit horizon is actually assigned to the technology and the characteristics of firms that, that are going to move faster on technologies and therefore get faster benefits. We align those carefully to our customer-obsessed maturity model and our IT maturity model, which kind of, when you look at those, really the two sides of the same coin. And so if you look at our IT maturity model, we categorize the more advanced firms as kind of modern and there's like 32% of firms are modern. And about 8% of firms are what we call future fit. And those future fit firms and the modern firms, but mostly it's the future fit firms that our data tell us are moving a lot faster on emerging technologies, are able to take better risks, and therefore are going to get much more benefit from these emerging technologies than kind of the middle of the bell curve firms. 
So it's, it's that future fit. It has to do with being adaptive, having a lot of resilience in your infrastructure, uh, having a lot of creativity in the way that you apply the use of technology for innovation. So adaptive, creative, and resilient. That's really the elements of future fit. So we should move on to the actual top 10. Everybody's talking about Gen AI. You know, it's number one. Why? That's a great question. Well, obviously, it's what everybody's talking about right now. And the reason why it's number one is because it's so foundational to many of our other top emerging technologies. Uh, conversational AI is certainly being driven forward by generative AI. Autonomous workplace assistants, which are kind of the back office employee supporting and process automation tools, are also being driven by generative AI. Things like Turing bots, automated code generation bots are being driven by generative AI. So when you look at the kind of astounding capabilities of generative AI that anybody can go look at and play with these open source and publicly available tools, it's hard to imagine engagement or a process that can't be rethought using some flavor of that technology. And then that's going to accelerate so many other things. So it's really hard to say that that's not the number one thing, but it also comes with a ton of risk, right? And that's a lot of things firms are grappling with right now. And maybe let's dig into those risks a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of risks associated with generative AI. I'll hit on them real quickly, but I want to spend some time ta asking Michelle to kind of reiterate what she told me because I was like, wow, that's cool. But primarily, you know, there's the risk of hallucinations, right? These things think they're right and they're not. And it's hard to tell, you know, was listening to the CEO of Google, who's Frank, he said, we don't know that this is actually something we can solve, but you know, how do you trust these things? That's the big thing, right? How do you trust them? What's the evolving regulatory environment look like? I mean, if you look at the stuff that's going on in Europe right now with the AI Act and the requirement to register all these and test all these AIs before you can really use them. The third thing is IP, right? You have to register it in the European AI Act. You have to register all the source data that you use to train your AI, especially if that data was copyrighted. And that's what we're seeing is we're seeing these tools learn from all this stuff that's out on the web, but it's copyrighted. Now, like if I train my AI on your stuff, do I owe you a royalty if I make money? And that's creating this idea of, of a lot of what we think is going to be these wall gardens where firms that are making that data available on the web. Oh, no, no. You know, if you train your AI, I want a piece of the action. I wanted Michelle to kind of jump in there and tell us what she was seeing. Yeah. So, you know, with generative AI and particularly as we see with chat GPT, anybody and everybody can bring their own AI to whatever use case they want. It's not just in the hands of enterprises anymore. And so many who are data savvy or they're savvy with their business applications, they know how to extract as much information or content out of those environments as they need to, to do their jobs um, or to extend the types of value or objectives and goals that they're going to have. Now, that's sort of this internal play. And organizations have gotten pretty savvy uh, from a data governance perspective on how do you create, you know, stronger access controls, observe the types of information that, you know, different employees are using. So the, the data security internally is evolving and working quite well. The challenge also comes into play, though, is as you start to allow this to flourish within any type of person can work with it. My 80-year-old mother can talk through ChatGPT and get answers on her own. So if she can do it. Imagine what your, you know, 20-something employee is doing. Now, but what does this mean? It means that all information that's available is up for grabs at this point. If you can, you know, click into a REST API 
and move it into your own generative AI function, well, now you're going to bring in content. You're going to bring in chat messages. You're going to bring in people's digital asset that they've created as well. And I think what you're starting to find is first, it was the conversation with um, technology firms or firms that are driven by technology, like big financial services organizations, where they're saying from a engineering perspective, you are not going to use any of these generative AI capabilities to help create code for our systems because accidentally our IP can get out there. So that's the first walled garden is you can't even apply this on your own information. But the second thing that's starting to happen is you see this within some of the social media areas. If you look at Twitter, you know, they're changing their subscription models that's, you know, costing you to access information. They're restricting how many tweets can come down and you can use that to train the system. If you take a look at the Snowflake Marketplace environment, you're having to build these apps to access information but they're going through subscriptions. You have contracts around these things. And I think at the end of the day, generative AI is only as good as the information that you're going to provide that. And for those who control the information that can really improve and make it better and take generative AI to that competitive advantage, they're finding ways to up the value of the data. So it's not just how effective or how much should I charge for the algorithm, it's now how much of a premium do I charge on my data? And so this is that notion of that wall gardens that I think we're going to see start cropping up. Michelle, do you think that for the average firm, their governance is keeping up with the velocity of the technology? Not at all. Most people in an organization can do a download of all of the contact information from Salesforce through you know, an a, a easy export function or a report export. You can go into your SharePoint environments and you can download all of that content. We all have different rights management to help us do our job, but we haven't been thinking about how do you take that information and feed that into an AI system. The AI of the past was part of the technology, the hardcore or citizen data scientists who knew how to use these tools. Now that it's accessible to everybody, that's just a use case that we haven't thought of. And we also don't know what generative AI tool is being brought to bear in the organization? So you don't know how that tool was trained. You don't know if it's coming from a reputable source. You don't know if it's introducing its own malicious, you know, malware code data into your own environment. And we don't have strong enough observability to see what tools today are being used, not just from a data perspective, but even from an AI perspective. So I think that that's really where CIOs are kind of struggling because they know Pandora's box is open already. Everybody's using it. So now they're trying to figure out like, well, how do we build the right literacy around it so that we protect ourselves? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. This one of the things I hear when I talk to folks about it, it's like this is advancing at a speed that we didn't expect that we can't deal with. And it's one of those things where, you know, Michelle, we've been working together for years. I've been writing about this whole kind of the exponential power, you know, for servers led to cloud accelerated big data, big data accelerated machine learning, massive compute on top of machine learning created better deep learning. Deep learning now led to generative AI and one after the other. And this that acceleration of benefit means that, you know, unless you've taken some steps up until now to really be future fit, you're going to struggle with all of these technologies. And generative AI is just, it's fun to talk about. It's everyone's talking about it, but it's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Right. And that's kind of why it's back to your question, why why it's number one. 
I was just going to ask if there's a, a connection between the comment around like walled gardens, as you had mentioned, Michelle, and the industries that we think will benefit the most from generative AI, or is there really no connection there? So let's think about companies that have been producing content for quite some time. I mean, it's no surprise that media companies are interested in how do they take their scripts? How do they take their digital assets? How do they start, you know, morphing those? They've been using AI for quite some time to generate movies. We've all seen Avatar, for example. We see all of these great effects on things like Maverick and Top Gun. But it's like now you can do all of that on steroids. So instead of creating and editing a film that takes years, you can start shrinking that down and have more granularity and other players involved in crafting that versus just a digital artist, for example. So media is one of those areas. Social media is a bastion for content. And while they may be walling their world off from us and constraining what we have access to, you got to know that they're exploiting that information in some manner, shape, or form. And while it could be an advertisement um, venue, I think that they're going to find that there's other types of products and services of value that can come out of you know stronger mining and using of this information through generative AI functions. But even within um, more of the engineering types of organizations and, and industries, I mean, you're seeing generative AI used in simulations to craft like, you know, class, you know, sailing boats to, you know, sail in the world in the, in the U.S. Cups. And so at that point, you know, they're able to design a whole sailboat without ever putting something together physically and throwing it in the water. And now they're saving millions of dollars and they can do that, re, you know, redesign that year upon year upon year. Take that to automotive, take that to other transportation. So you see how this is evolving to lead in other areas. And at the end of the day, maybe there's more applications that are being distributed out from companies like a Salesforce, like a ServiceNow, like a Workday that are gravitating towards all the content that they've been collecting and helping us to better train our employees, to give us new apps, to do our jobs better. And so I don't think that there's actually going to be one industry that benefits the most. But certainly those that have the walled garden today are in a much better position if they've got their data house in order. So what else is in the most immediate or short-term bucket in terms of our top 10 list and why? It's really funny because the other two are actually there being accelerated by generative AI. So it's really kind of a threesome that hits our short-term bucket, right? So the other two are conversational AI and autonomous workplace assistance. We kind of talk about each for a sec. We differentiate between conversational AI and generative AI because as probably most people know, generative AI has got a lot of use cases in imagery and, and computer vision and other places. But when you think about what tools like ChatGPT are doing is they're taking a generative AI model and they're applying it specifically to a natural language conversation. So we talk about conversational AIs as kind of the manifestation of the next generation tools that you know, we used to call them chatbots, right? But we all know that a chatbot today, if, if you've ever experienced one, is not at all helpful for most companies that you work with. Um, they're very rules-based, they're very heuristic, and they often miss the mark, but they're getting a lot better. And so, we'll, and, and they've been on, many of these chatbot tools have been on the market now for, you know, at least five years. So what we expect to see over the next two to four years is these tools really accelerated by the 
capabilities that reinforcement learning, uh, large language models, transformer networks, and the, all the pieces of generative AI really bring to those conversational interfaces. And so we think that the time of the conversational AI is really going to begin dawning over the next uh, couple of years. Um, autonomous workplace assistance. Last year, we called these things intelligent agents. But what we found in talking to clients is that word is a little nebulous. And so the research analyst who works in this area, Greg LeClaire, renamed it AWAs or autonomous workplace assistance to really focus these things on software robots that help automate back office processes to make them more efficient and focus on employee facing software robots that really represent the intersection yesterday's RPA or BPM software packages, those things are kind of coming together and they're becoming infused with conversational interfaces to support, for example, call centers, maybe to summarize or anticipate what a calling client wants or needs, as well as being infused with other kinds of more basic AI and capabilities like text analytics, entity recognition models, and so on and so forth. So these autonomous workplace assistants are really kind of the back-end bot. And conversational AIs are showing up first as natural language interfaces to chatbots, for example. But they're also then conversational AIs are showing up as components of these automated workplace assistants, which are focusing on employees and back office processes. So you really have these kind of three, Magin AI, autonomous workplace assistants, and conversational AIs all working together to create a lot of very rapid benefit for front and back office. And that's like it's creating a pace that our clients have really never seen before, but we've been seeing that train coming for a number of years and now it's about to run over us. So that's what's really right in front of most clients. At least that's what we found in our report. So let's maybe move on to the, the medium term, which I think has four technologies in it, right? Let me just hit a few first and say the ones that were on our list last year that made it this year, again, are explainable AI, which is kind of medium term last year, and it's a medium term this year. Think about this, right? If AI is about to run over us and the age of AI is dawning or whatever you want to call it, the one thing that clients really need to take advantage of that is you got to be able to trust what these things are doing. And trustworthiness is probably the number one issue is how do you believe? How do you know what this model did? How are you going to put this thing in front of your customers? And explainable AI attempts to do that. The problem with explainable AI today is that it's a separate set of skills and tools from the places where you actually might interact with, for instance, a bot. So bringing those two together and infusing the user tools, the call center software that now has a generative AI capability built in, or your Salesforce that now has generative AI summarizations of the last conversations with the customer. How do you know what that thing's telling you is true? You need explainable AI capabilities in those tools so business people can become more comfortable, and that's going to take a couple more years. But it's really, really important. The other one that was in our list last year, another two, were decentralized digital identity. That's kind of a new one this year. And essentially what decentralized digital identity is saying is that all the things that we use like driver's license or identity cards, all the things that businesses use to understand who you are and for a financial services firm to, for instance, know your customer to do that check-in. Are you who we think you are so we can trust you and do business and, and let you do business with our partners? All that's very centralized today uh, and it's centralized with whatever business happens to be doing it in that that interaction of me knowing who you are so I can work with you has to be repeated for every every time a customer goes somewhere else. And decentralized digital identity takes blockchain and it takes things like zero knowledge proofs. And it says we can create a decentralized infrastructure so that within an ecosystem of partners who are all cooperating on the blockchain, we can establish trust relationships so that a trust relationship between a consumer and a company A can now be moved over to that same consumer with company B and it's much more frictionless. 
And at the same time, you can protect that consumer's actual information so that the consumer's privacy is preserved. So it's kind of a privacy preserving technology, but it's a scale technology in terms of scaling identity and access management. It's been around for a while. It's not new, but it's moving very slowly because of the standards required to adopt this thing are not yet mature yet. There's capabilities like transitive trust that are needed. There's some ISO standards that need to be implemented by the vendors. And it's just because it's about adoption and standards, and that's about people and businesses finding win-win, it's moving very slowly. Last thing I'll say quickly is about Turing bots. That's really being accelerated by generative AI. If you look at things like Microsoft Copilot, if you look at some of the capabilities in Google today where they have a whole code generation module, we looked at these things and we called them Turing bots in 2020. We said, hey, these are coming and everyone kind of looked at us like, what the heck are you talking about? Flash forward three years and these things are just all over us and they're making software and coding artifacts all across the software development lifecycle and this is only going to accelerate. I want to spend a minute and ask a little bit about edge intelligence, which is something I kind of worked out some research a while back, but I know that Michelle has been doing a lot around that. Well, I think the thing is first, like you and Michelle Polino put in some really groundbreaking research around edge computing, which sort of redefined and recast how we think about edge from not just being about IoT, but really thinking about the edge of value where you're actually delivering on what businesses are trying to achieve or how you're actually operating at the core. And so I think that first took a little bit for people to get their arms around and recognize like, oh, I'm not thinking technology. I'm thinking about what am I giving as a return on investment? And then, but now that we infuse intelligence into that, it's like, well, now we're thinking about the use cases. We're thinking about what the compute is actually doing. It's processing information. It's processing different types of experiences. And then it's processing the intelligence on top of that. And I think what's really great right now, and while it still makes the list rather than falling off, is that organizations really needed to build a data foundation of essentially, you know, data pipelines, a network of information in and out and beyond the, um, you know, the organization. And so they've spent a lot of time, effort, and investment in doing stronger adoption of event-driven architectures, um, it, you know, taking on and adopting streaming data platforms, and getting familiar with these and more simplistic use cases of just being able to transition information to be able to be effective in automating a process or delivering an experience or transacting, you know, in a retail or commerce setting. Now it's like we got to put the AI inside. Um, it's not easy to deploy AI models because there's, again, models, even with generative AI, it's usually a collection. So you have to really think about what is the ontology of that AI architecture. You have to think about where all of the, you know, where and how all of these models are going to speak to each other. Not everything's going to come back to the cloud anymore and process centrally. It's also going to process on the edge and we're still evolving the edge data management capabilities, you know, both locally in our edge servers, but also out on our devices. And so that has to work. And then once you start thinking about that and you're adding more value and you're also adding more risk as AI goes out, especially if it's generative AI, security matters, privacy matters. And the security and privacy control plane has not quite caught up yet to where we need to go. So similar to what you were talking about of decentralized digital identity, that's another facet that needs to further evolve. Edge intelligence is somewhat different than some of the others on the list because it's really much more of 
a holistic solution and platform. It's relying on a multitude of existing technologies and other emerging technologies to actually get to the end state. But it's moving quickly and organizations are definitely on the right adoption path. So it's not that it's stalled so much. It's they're learning how to put the pieces in place. Let's talk about some of the remaining techs that we have on our list, particularly the ones that aren't going to deliver value for five or more years. What are those techs and why aren't they going to deliver value for a little while longer? Yeah, well, I, the three that are on our list for kind of five years plus are Extended Reality, which is on the list last year, Web3, which is on the list last year, and Zero Trust Edge. And if we look at each one of those, the stories are a little bit different. Extended Reality, really, there's two sides of that story. There's a consumer story, and there's a B2B or a business to enterprise type of story. First off, let's say when we start to talk about Extended Reality, we're really using an umbrella term to mean augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality. We're kind of what we see is a fusion of those technologies into what we're calling extended reality. And the enterprise uses of those technologies are really moving a lot faster than the consumer. Uh, our data tells us that on the consumer side, adoption just isn't there. The foreign factor needs more time to get smaller, to get more affordable, and for people, for consumers, really minds to change. Because what we've seen is we as consumers, I've done this as well. We've become very good at being trained over the last 20 years to use the mouse and the screen. And so getting away from mouse and screen is going to maybe even take some generations of people who just, they're used to using more of a uh, of a visual interface. And you know, changing the interface can change the world, but it's going to take time. In the meantime, we're going to see some uh, employee-facing use cases, specifically in onboarding and training. Those are the big things right now. And we're going to see, you know, collaboration kind of behind that. So the employee-facing uses are going to lead the way ahead of consumer-facing use cases. The consumer adoption is just going to take a while to happen. As we think it is going to happen, it's going to be a big piece of something we call anticipatory experiences, but it's going to take a while. Zero Trust Edge is another one we just think needs some time. The whole idea of Zero Trust Edge is that it's really a piece of that edge story that Michelle was starting to tell well. Um, one of the issues that we've, we've been writing about this for years, this whole idea of a zero trust architecture. And a zero trust security architecture means trust nothing, inspect everything. That's the way I think about it. And to do that, you have to look at every packet of information flowing across your networks and various network topologies and configurations, depending on what you're trying to do. And, and you know, is it a streaming kind of architecture? Is it real time? Is it, are you moving everything back to the cloud? Are you doing your analytics in the cloud? Your network needs to change based on, on your needs. And software-defined networking is a great solution. It's been around for a long time. It allows you to reconfigure via software the kind of network you need to meet a particular use case. The problem, and now what we're starting to see, is these software-defined networking networks implementing the zero-trust security model. Cool. The question is, and if you have all these software-defined networks out at the edge in many different remote sites, many retail sites or offices or manufacturing plants or wherever, smart homes or wherever, how do you control all those separate network configurations that are in different places? And the answer is you centralize a control plane in the cloud. So what we've seen is security vendors buying networking vendors, networking vendors buying security vendors, and everyone's trying to figure out how to create this one package to rule them all, to manage both the network, the security, and the control, and how do you do it? And that's going to take time to work through these acquisitions. So those two, XR and ZTE, we think are definitely right in front of you, but it's going to take time to get there, five or more years. Web3 is a different beast. The promise of Web3 is this democratic internet, right? The democratic token-based, take control of your data, control your life, participate in the ecosystem. It's all open source. It's all via tokenomics and cryptocurrency. That sounds great. And it was really exciting last year because it got wrapped up in the whole metaverse thing. 
the issue that we're seeing is this is still basically a self-referential group of people who are focused on financial engineering, trading, and applications built on top of cryptocurrency. And we don't see very many indications that it's going to move beyond that. And that whole area is fraught with risk and scandal. And I'll tell you, a lot of most firms haven't really figured out what their position, their real position on accepting cryptocurrency is going to be. And that is going to take a while. So we just don't see a lot of evidence that Web3 is going to move very quickly to that thing that's being promoted. And we think that even when it does, it may not be called Web3 anymore. So we're pretty skeptical on Web3, whereas the other two, we know they're coming. They're just taking longer because of all the dependencies we've discussed. So, Brian, when you were introducing this list, you were talking about, oh, we have a list of hundreds of technologies that we pare down to 20 and then we debate them and we get input from a variety of sources. So maybe share a little bit, not that these are on the cutting room floor by any stretch, because we talk about probably these other technologies quite a bit. But which of the technologies were hotly debated, almost made the list, but maybe didn't this year? There was also another debate that we had about even how they got onto the lists too, which was the technology new or was the application of that technology new? That was an interesting conversation. Oh, it totally was, Michelle. That And what actually happened is there's a number of technologies. I think there were 18 of them, like uh, low-code platforms. It's something I still see on people's technology watch list today, IoT platforms is another one that we think those are actually from a technology capability emerged. So we created this emerged group and there's a group of really important technologies that have been out of the market for a while. So the capabilities are mature, but they still haven't necessarily reached equilibrium in all the industries or with every firm that needs to. So those, there's a lot of those that we decided to say that were emerged and we kind of excluded them from our listing. They're really important. Cloud native computing, which was on our top 10 last year moved off our top 10 and now we think it's emerged. It's like, we think that's really important to your core competitive advantage. If you aren't all over it, you should be. So that's a good reminder, Michelle, about that. Just to answer your question though, what were some things we debated? I think one of the hot things, of course, we debated metaverse. I think the metaverse winter that we're seeing right now that we call last year in our research right before it happened is, I don't know, I'm going to pat myself on the head or pat us on the head and say, you know, we didn't have metaverse on our top 10 last year, even though we could have put it there because it was all the rage. We also saw some of the weaknesses and actually what is this thing and and is it going to persist in our, and we made the call that we thought that it might not by not putting it on the top 10 this year, last year. And we didn't put it on the top 10 this year, even though it's in our next 20 specifically so we could have the conversation about you know what happened, why. Another one that was debated is this whole idea of where quantum computing fits. Um, we seem to be pretty close to some real advantage. Uh, we're not there yet, but close to some real advantage with certain kinds of quantum computers for something called noisy intermediate scale quantum computing applications or NISC. But we're still not quite there yet. And we think that there's still going to be a fair amount of time before maybe five plus years or longer before we really begin to see the average firm be in a position to do something useful with quantum computers. But we really looked at it hard. The area where we really thought was interesting is in quantum security. Um, I did an analysis with our security team about the amount of time it might be before quantum computers could, in theory, start decrypting PKI encryption. And I think the number we came up with is about most likely 13 years from now. 13 was about the number we came. But we see a small probability, maybe 10 to 12% chance that it will happen much faster, perhaps even within the next five years. 
So if you really want to be cautious about your information, anything you're sending across the wire needs to begin to migrate to quantum safe encryption now on that small probability that in the future, within the next few years, that information will be susceptible to being hacked if it's encrypted in asymmetric key encryption. So those were some things that we really debated about, but they didn't quite make our top 10. Super exciting stuff. Um, Really excited to hear and go deeper a bit more at our technology and innovation events coming up later this year. Thank you both, Brian and Michelle, for joining us today. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to check out our upcoming technology forums starting in September. To learn more, visit for.com slash tech events. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash tech events. Thanks for listening.